production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. David Kessler is the world's foremost expert on grief and loss. His experience with thousands of people on the edge of life and death has taught him the secrets to living a happy and fulfilled existence, even in the wake of tragedies. David says many people look for closure after loss. He argues that it's finding meaning beyond the stages of grief most of us are familiar with, denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance that can transform it into a more peaceful and hopeful experience. My conversation with David traverses many realms, finding hope within the darkness, grieving the loss of a world we once knew and remembering those who have died with more love than pain. There's only one thing worse than the thought of my younger son dying, is me never getting to meet him. So I am ever so grateful I got to know him this lifetime. That would have been the worst thing that could have happened. And I'm so grateful I had those years with him. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. David Kessler is the author of many books, including Grieving and Grief, and his newest book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. More than anything, this is a conversation about this fleeting, shared experience we call life and how precious each day really is. May this episode bring healing and love to all of those who have ever experienced loss, ignite the inner hope you seek most, and guide you towards peace. David Kessler, thank you for joining me today. How did your childhood shape the work you are currently in because you have done so much profound, amazing work for this world? You know, in my childhood, I had a mother who was ill as I grew up. And then when I was about 13 years old, she got really sick and had to go in the hospital in the big city, which was a few hours away. And at the hotel across the street from where she was dying, and I wasn't really even sure I, didn't, I don't think I really knew she was dying at the time. Uh, a fire broke out. We you know, ran out of the hotel and looked up at the 18th floor and the fire trucks pulled up. And next thing you know, shooting started. This wasn't just a fire. It was a shooting. And unfortunately, it was one of the first mass shootings in the U.S. And as you know, we have gone on to have many, many of them. And... I had to deal with seeing hotel guests, police, first responders shot, and then my mother dying. And it really, you know, it's the kind of event in your life that it changes the trajectory in a, in a healing way or a bad way. And I knew I needed to find healing. There was no one there who sort of knew how to help a child like me going through that. And I often say in the strangest way, I became the person that I wish would have been there to help me. Yeah. So that's, you know, clearly put me on this path of decades of helping others uh, and, you know, first learning to help myself. How did your mother's death then shape the rest of your childhood and adolescence? You know, there's... There's something about the, those primary relationships that we have with our, our mothers or fathers. And, you know, I think she left an emptiness behind that was impossible, of course, to fill. But it's also remarkable to me how that continues on. I remember 
maybe 10 years ago when I was working in a hospital system here, my boss called me in and said, one of my colleagues who was a good friend is about to be fired. And she said, I want you to know to maybe support him if you need to, you know, take some time today to be with him, feel free. He's in the other room being fired. So, you know, we packed up his office afterwards. I said, hey, I'll follow you home. On the way home, he told me he had called his wife. She couldn't get away from work. I was there at the house with him. And he picked up the phone and called his mother. And, you know, he was in his 40s. And I went, holy Holy crap, I never thought of that. I don't, I don't have, like, if I got fired, I don't have a mother. Like, you just forget all those moments that you're not going to have. Yeah. So, it, you know, it opened my eyes into so many ways that when someone dies, they leave such a hole in our life. Mm. And it doesn't mean I haven't gone on to have, like, a wonderful life and a happy life. And I'll, you know, that's a theme that I keep coming back to, that even after the worst tragedies, you know, happiness is still possible. You helped co-author one of the most famous books on grieving called The Five Stages of Grief with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And it talks about, you know, those stages of denial and anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance that is one of the most profound books. How did you both come up with the idea of even writing about that, knowing now that those five stages would be the key things that people hold on to when they are going through a loss? Well, let me give you a little interesting history about those. Um, Elizabeth, first wrote about the stages in her book on death and dying in 1969. Wow. And it was something that wasn't talked about. Dying wasn't talked about. You know, in many ways, we don't understand that she brought death and dying out of the, the darkness in the strangest way. Before that, when someone died, they sort of slipped away. Mm. And she observed these stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Over the years, they became part of our culture and they began getting adapted for grief, sometimes very poorly in, in ways that people misinterpreted them. And I was so honored to get to know Elizabeth and I would say, you know, the stages, they keep getting adapted for grief. And she goes, well, they work for grief and all kinds of loss. And I'm like, yeah, but they're getting misadapted here. And people have myths and misinformation. And we wrote a book called Life Lessons Together. And after that book, one day, uh, they called and said, Elizabeth wants to formally adapt those stages from dying to grief. And that's when we ended up writing the book on grief and grieving that you mentioned uh, about the five stages in grief. And one of the things that we said on page one that we really wanted to clear up, the stages aren't linear. Yes. You don't have to follow them exactly. And the other myth was that when people thought of acceptance, it was like, and the grief is over. Yes. And that's not how it worked. And we wanted to say literally on page one, you know, we are formally adapting these stages. There is no model for grief. There is no map for grief. Everyone's grief is unique. And, and for many people, grief is so unknown that knowing there's some scaffolding there called the stages can be really helpful. And if it's not your cup of tea, Elizabeth was the first one to say, you don't need instructions, just grieve. Yeah. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Because when I've had loss in my life, I go back to those stages right. and, and you just go, 
right, that's how I'm feeling. I'm feeling angry or I'm bargaining. Like it hasn't really happened now. (laughs) It's in my imagination. Like to your point, and what I've found is that they are 100% not linear. I mean, one day you can think, oh, I've accepted this, and the next day you're in bargaining again. So it's it moves from one to the other. But one thing that you have realised is that there is now a sixth stage of grief, and you have put that in your new book called Finding Meaning. Can you talk a bit about this sixth stage that you have found? Sure. So I had written at this very desk I'm sitting a few chapters about meaning and grief. I was always curious about Viktor Frankl's work in concentration camps and his book, Man's Search for Meaning, how meaning and grief intersect. And as writers sometimes do, I put those chapters away. I had to go on tour or whatever and figure it I'd get back to them. I was across the country. Uh, I live in Los Angeles. I was in Baltimore. And I got a call that uh, um, from my older son. And it turns out my younger son, David, had died unexpectedly. And brutal as anyone could imagine. And I had to go through those stages and those experiences, just like anyone else. You know, being a grief expert doesn't help you when it's your grief. Mm. And I even had to do things like I went to a grief counselor. I had to like really take my own advice. I went to a grief counselor and I had to go to a grief group with a cap on, took my contacts out, put glasses on and sat in a grief group four feet away from a table with my books on it. And I couldn't say, that's me. I had to be not the grief expert, but the father who had to bury a child. And I would go, yep, there you are in the stage of anger. Up, yeah, you're in denial. I would sort of see myself also experiencing the grief. And when I began to think of someday accepting this reality, I was like, yeah, there's no way. I can't stop at acceptance. I wanted more. And I picked up those pages of meaning and I looked at them and I went, meaning, that's interesting. And I threw them down like that's not going to help. And then a few days later, I picked them back up and meaning didn't take away the pain, but it gave it a cushion. Mm. And I was so curious about meaning that I began talking to other people how they found meaning, how other parents had found meaning and loss, how people who had had a spouse who died after decades found meaning, people who had had a parent die. And it was really remarkable to learn and understand how profoundly meaning can impact us. Now, I always say to people up front, When they hear meaning, they'll go, there's no meaning in a loved one dying of cancer. There's no meaning in a pandemic. There's no meaning in a child dying. And I go, correct. The meaning is not in that death. The meaning is what we do after. So the book Finding Meaning is kind of my journey of helping myself and other people excavate the pain to find the meaning. And I was also, last thing about that, going back to Kubler-Ross, I was so honored that the Kubler-Ross family gave me permission to add a sixth stage to her iconic Mm -hmm. stages. So I was really honored that they did that. Your son was 21 when he died. How do you deal with that? I have spent so many decades that I did know about the randomness of death. Yes. I did come out of children's hospital where I worked. I did know that kids died. I did think my, my illusion that I wish would have been true was all my grief was behind me. And I would grieve again when I was in my 90s and all my friends died. 
it was never on my radar that I could have a child die. Wasn't never imagined that or thought that. Not that any parent does. How did you deal with that, David? You know, it was just that doing the things that I told everyone else to do. I mean, I knew there was no way around the pain. And I also, one of the things in that new book that I researched and I never thought I would research it, I never thought I'd study buffaloes, but uh, I did some research. Buffaloes, when they sense a storm coming, actually run into the storm, thereby minimizing the time they're uncomfortable. Think about how opposite that is to us. We run from the pain, thereby making the time we're in the pain longer and dealing with the pain longer. So I did know the only way out of the pain was through the pain. And I just had to let that be. Mm. I had to let that be. You say that we are in a society where grief is not allowed and people want you to get over it and move on. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, we're in a very productive society that's goal-oriented. It's about doing. And grief is about being. Mm. What do you want to do? You got to do things, you know? And there is a doingness. Uh, to grief, but it's it's not the kind of doingness we think. The world is grief illiterate. Our grief does make people uncomfortable. If your spouse dies, all your married couple friends don't want to hang out with you yeah. because death could come to them. If your loved one dies by suicide, well, it could be contagious. If, you know, a child dies, that's hideously uncomfortable. Your sibling dies, I mean... This is hard stuff we're talking about. People, since the beginning of time, have come together with other people in grief because we realize there's this strange thing that happens. We think our best friend or our spouse, who gets everything about us, is going to get our grief. And sometimes the people closest to our best friends, they don't get our grief. They don't get our grief. So we come together, like I have a program called Tender Hearts that a lot of people in Australia are even on. And we understand there's some things you need to speak to someone who speaks the same language. We don't all have the same losses, but we know there's a universality to our pain. And people come together with that in all kinds of places there. It is he's so unbelievably important. A friend of mine who, a work colleague, about, oh, I don't know, two months or so ago, out of nowhere, committed suicide. And it's probably the first person in my life that's been close to me that that's ever happened. And he's young and charismatic and it's just, it's always just a shock and awful in every circumstance. And I got so much solace out of where I work because it affected everyone that works here because he touched so many people's lives and the community that came together. And I remember when we all found out, I mean, that will be branded in my mind for the rest of my life, but it was this group of us that were just crying and hugging and talking to each other and To your point, David, it's so important to be able to have that community because there are situations and my cousin died a couple of years ago when he was young, 29, and it was a shock as well, not suicide or anything, but it came as a shock. And I remember, you know, my best friend, she was unbelievable. She was there for me every second of the way, but then there there were other people in my life who didn't even mention it. Right. And it's one of those things where, I mean, they're gorgeous people, but I think they felt so uncomfortable that they just didn't know what to say. And that, at the time, really upset me because I remember thinking, it's my cousin. He's 29. How, how can you not even ask me how I am? 
So what should we say to people when they've lost someone close to them? Well, you know, my, my website, by the way, just to let folks know, um, is grief.com. And one of the things, there's a lot of resources there. There's a, um, uh, a page people can go directly to it called griefsuicide.com that has a three, free three-part class for anyone who's had a loved one who's died by suicide. Yeah. And um, on grief.com, there's a whole page about the best and the worst things to say to people in grief. You know, the best things are when we're just, I don't have the right words, but I'm here with you. Mm. Uh, I don't know what this is like for you, but I'm with you. They're not about trying to fix you. They're not about trying to give you the silver lining. And you find also some of the things that people talk about are, you know, at least they died quickly. At least they're not suffering. There's a lot of, if your sentence starts with a least, it's going to be judgmental or minimized. Yes. So, and it is the most visited page on grief.com to me, which shows people really don't know what to say. And I'm glad they can find some resources. Yes, it's so unbelievably important. You spoke obviously about finding meaning, the sixth chapter. Can you talk to us in depth about about that new chapter and how important it is? Well, you know, I think one of the goals of grief is to remember with more love than pain. Mm. And like you mentioned, our society doesn't know how to do it. Our friends often don't know how to do it. If it didn't collectively happen to everyone there, you know, you wouldn't know how to support a friend or how to support yourself. So that sixth stage to me really helps people find a way to deal with their pain, to understand the reality that you know, our grief isn't going to get smaller. We've got to become bigger. Yes. And to me, meaning is how we become bigger. And it looks differently on everyone. You know, some people think of meaning, oh, that means you're going to start a charity or a foundation. It doesn't have to be those big things. It can be little small moments. Like this is a meaningful moment you and I are having. Can we just name these meaningful moments mm. and define meaning in the littlest things? It can be a meal you have with a friend when you talk about your loved one who died. It can be listening to music in their honor. There's a million little things that can be so meaningful that we don't know how to take them in. No one's taught us how to do that. And once again, I always want to remind people when I'm talking about meaning, I don't mean pouring pink paint over, you know, the pain. You have to deal with the pain. And I give lots of, you know, ways in there that we do deal with the pain. And the, the other thing I want to mention about meaning is it's a decision to make. Mm. A friend called me maybe a month or two after my son had died and said, I know you're drowning and you're going to be drowning for a while. And at some point you're going to hit bottom. And when you hit bottom, you're going to have a decision to make. Do you stay there or do you push off? And I pushed off. And it really helped me to know I didn't do it right away. But to understand, we all have that decision to make. Life can be brutal and losses are tough. And obviously with COVID, they're just not, you know, the loss of a loved one through death. They're also the loss of the world we knew. There's divorces that happen. There's relationship. There's job losses. We're losing businesses and restaurants and tons of losses. And that through all that, we subtly each time have to make a decision, do we continue living? Mm. And it's a powerful thing to consider. It's so powerful. David, how did you push off? 
when you were at your darkest moments after your son died? You know, I was so lucky in my work that I'd been lecturing for years and had, oh my gosh, people who have gone through enormous tragedies, 9-11, murders, divorces, horrible things, betrayals, just the worst things ever, come to my workshops and want to learn how to help other people. And it's just, you know, I thought back on all of them and they were my beacons that we can survive. When you are in those times where you take those workshops or do one-on-one work, I mean, you're, this is your job and I know it's a job, but at the same time, I mean, you're giving back in such a huge way to so many people, but you are also hearing these horrible stories and watching people so sad and so broken. How do you deal with that in your everyday life when you're in bed at night and it's dark and you're thinking back to the day and the couple that lost their young child or or any other big emotional breakups that have happened? Well, I've had to learn empathy and boundaries. And I have learned when someone comes in my presence or in my presence even on Zoom, I see them and I see their grief. Mm. And when they walk away or when the Zoom ends, they take their grief with them. And I send them so much love and so much healing. But I know their grief is not mine. I got my own. Yeah. So I've learned to not take on anyone else's grief. And we have a a free Facebook group that people can find if they go to grief.com also. And I'll tell you, I've had great speakers come on like Nancy Levin talking about boundaries and stuff, people who really sort of help us understand how to put these things in place, these boundaries in place to not go you big wall, but instead to go, I honor you and your love and your pain. And I won't steal any of your love or any of your pain. I'll focus on my own love and my own pain. spoke about something before which is just so true. It was about COVID and when we think of grieving, we think of dying. But as a whole world, we're just grieving because of COVID in such a heavy way. We're grieving for the life that we had that we no longer have. We're grieving because we can't travel, we can't see loved ones. We can't even sometimes see our parents or our grandparents or our friends or there's just so much grief, business has lost, huge amount of different stuff. How do we best cope with that, David, as we seem at the moment to still be so ingrained in that? You know, I think one of the biggest challenges for us is we like certainty. Yeah. And we want a clean end. I know the truth of this. Life is going to continue there is going to be an after this. We are going to come out of this. There is no night that didn't give away today. I believe this will end. But it's not ending cleanly and quickly. And it's not giving us the certainty we would like. You know, it's a little bit of Kubler-Ross's bargaining that we were like, okay, if I give you one lockdown and we shut down, we're going to be okay. Oh, really? It's longer? Oh, okay. But if we get a vaccine, then it'll all be okay. Oh, there's variants? We're not all getting the vaccine? It's taking longer? I mean, we're not finding the certainty we want. And boy, that makes us uneasy. So this is challenging. And we're just, you know, we're all dealing with the loss of the normal world that we could count on. That's gone forever and you know we're going to have this new world that we're going to say things like I don't know what it's going to be like but do you remember when we didn't have to worry about pandemics or do you remember when we didn't have vaccines all the time or whatever it was 
the world we knew a couple of years ago is gone. And we are having to adjust to this new challenging world. And it's tough. And to recognize it and name it, it is grief. The world we loved is gone. Doesn't mean there's not going to be a new, different world. But we have to grieve the old one. Is there something in that as well about appreciating what we have at the time? You know, when someone dies or going back to what the world was like and I'm thinking, God, I should have appreciated being able to travel more. But you don't think of that because it's just how you've always been. It's your life since you've been born to COVID hit. You've, if you wanted to go away, you could go away. But again, it's same as when someone dies, you think I should have spent more time with them, I should have said this to them. What is the best way that we can get the most out of every day so we don't have those regrets? Well, there's an old proverb that talks about when is the best time to plant a tree? The best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best plant time to plant a tree is right now. So I think of that saying as, oh my gosh, we didn't take the world. We didn't appreciate the world. We took it for granted. People die. We didn't appreciate them. We took them for granted. We missed the boat being all we can be. And this is a new moment. This is our second best time to plant the seeds and be grateful for the people in our life, for this world. I mean, I'm grateful you and I can Zoom like this. You know, I would have imagined if I can't get to Australia, I'm not talking to anyone there. And yet I'm grateful we have found this and we have this. It's not as good as going there, but I'm still grateful for this. Yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because exactly, and I think to myself, I don't do as many face-to-face interviews anymore, but maybe if COVID didn't happen, I wouldn't have as as much access to people like you because you'd be touring the whole time or travelling. But the fact that you're not means that we can chat like this. So I suppose you can find the beauty in the everyday. There always is something there. You say... Our hearts know how to grieve, but our minds work against us. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. I often say to people, you know, you have a broken heart, not a broken mind. We can't think our way out of grief. And sometimes we do try to do that. And our mind, our mind wants to find control. And our mind would always rather be guilty than helpless. So sometimes we find little things to blame ourselves for. Oh, I should have been a better person, or I should have done this before they died, or if only I'd done this in the relationship, we wouldn't have divorced, or why didn't I take the big trip before COVID? And we beat ourselves up. You know, the truth is, if our friend was in grief, they just lost a job, lost a relationship, we'd be the kindest person to them. Mm. And yet sometimes... Our mind is so cruel to us. Our mind is cruel to us often. Why is the mind like that? You know, part of it's a protective mechanism. Yeah. It's our primal negative bias mind. You know, in the cave next to me when our ancestors were cavemen, you know, the lion ate my neighbor. I better worry about bad things happening. So... Our mind's still in that protective state. It wants to find control, even if that's false, to blame, just to make us feel safer. Yes. With all your work in grief and dying, do you believe that there is a higher power at play? I do, but I don't believe in a punishing higher power. Yeah. And I don't believe that there is a higher power out there that goes, I'm taking your child and your wife and Mm. I'm ruining your job and I'm giving you guys this virus. I don't believe in that. I believe this is a world that's been set up and, you know, flowers grow and flowers bloom 
and flowers die and they do it all at different times. Some of us get 80 years, some of us get five years. Some of us are married once for our whole lives. Others of us have many marriages. Some of us never get married. You know, so I feel like it is a world that's different for everyone, but I don't believe there's a rewarding, punishing higher power up there. Caroline Mace, when I spoke to her, she just said it so beautifully. She talked about how death is impersonal. She said, when someone has a child, they don't go, a child's born. Oh my God, I can't believe, I I can't believe this happened to us. We've had a child. It's just so, I just can't believe. But when someone dies, you go, I can't believe this happened to me. She's like, but I understand now that's impersonal. Death and birth is impersonal. And it's so true. There's no one up there going, David Kessler, I'm going to take your 21-year-old son away from you. It's an impersonal thing, birth and death. Right. And yet we do personalize it. And it is hard, you know, when our old wounds come up. And a lot of our old wounds come up as personalization. Yeah. And that's why, you know, we have to find ways to heal ourselves. You say if the love is real, then the grief is real. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, you know, there's so many things people go, well, what about pet loss? What about this? And I go, it doesn't matter. Pets, people, if the love is real, the grief is real. You know, this lifetime is a package deal. I remind people, you don't have to grieve this life. You actually don't have to grieve this life. You can skip grief, but you're going to have to skip love. You're going to have to skip attachment. I don't want to do that. I don't want to skip love this lifetime. Oh, that means I'm going to have grief. I'm willing to take that package deal. And most of us do. Do you think that everyone is touched by grief in their life? Yes, but we're touched in different ways. And one of the things that's challenging for many people, and I talk about this in Finding Meaning, that there's what I call practical grievers. Practical grievers are the ones who go to the funeral, cry, and they're done, back to work. And it's so bothersome to feeling grievers. And they look like they've moved on too quick. And sometimes they'll even tell us to move on. It's two different grieving styles. They're not wrong, we're not right, or vice versa. And sometimes that happens with siblings. Sometimes it happens with a married couple. Why are you grieving like me? Didn't you love the person? We, we equate it that if you're not crying as much as me, mm. you must not love them. But there are different styles of grieving. And it's important to recognize that our grief is as unique as our fingerprint. We're all going to do grief so differently because everyone has a different relationship with mom, dad, or child, or pet, whoever died. How come some people, when they've lost loved ones, can move forward in their life and others can't? A lot of times it's past trauma. Yeah. It's past wounds. You know, all grief does not have trauma, but all trauma has grief. And grief impacts trauma, and trauma impacts grief. So... Not all of us have had clean slates to sort of deal with the grief freshly. We've been through a lot already, and that can hinder our work. How do we help children who are exposed to grief? By healing ourselves. By healing ourselves, we want to make sure we take care of our grief. You know, grief is something that's modeled. You want to give your children tools if you think that would help. Obviously, children need support. You know, if there's a grief group available, if they need a counselor. But if they're like, they don't want it, you know, a grief group, many times they have fears that it's going to be just horrible. Ask them to just go three times. And a lot of times they find it's kind of, an okay thing. 
But you want to really focus on you because I'm a big believer that, you know, people look at us, especially our children and go, oh, wow, every time you come back from the grief group, you're in a better mood. I want what you got. Is there a grief group for me? You know, to do it by modeling for our children. Do you think it's okay for children to see our emotions? So if we're crying or if we're sad, for them to be exposed to that? We need to show our children two things, us grieving fully and us living fully. Yeah. And we need to do a mixture of them. You know, people go, I'm crying all the time and not in front of the children. Let them see you cry, but not all the time. And you've got to model living for them. And you've got to model living for them even when you don't feel like it. Because, you know, someday your children are going to go through other losses in their adulthood. And they need to remember how mom grieved fully and I saw her continuing to live fully, even at times when she didn't want to. Yeah. Why do we place so much judgment on other people's grief? It scares us. Yeah. It frightens us. We're afraid it's coming to our door. It's the unknown. You know, people will sometimes go, can you do something with my wife, my sister, my best friend? Their loved one died and I want the old them back. And I'll say, by the way, they would love to have the old them back. Mm. But someone died. The old them is gone. There's a new person there. And you have to meet that person who's been changed by death. And your loss is your friend that you knew, who was the carefree person, now has had a tough thing happen in life. And we have to decide, are we there for just the sunny days of our friends' lives? Or are we there for all the days of their lives? Do you believe that time heals all wounds? Time is a factor, but I'm not a fan of saying that to people because it's become a cliche. You know, grief is organic. It will heal you in your own way, in your own time, at your own pace. How do we find gratitude in grief? Well, it takes time. And I often talk about early in grief. And by the way, I think of early grief as the first two years. I often in that first year don't call it gratitude. I think of it as wins. Yeah. Like you getting the kids to school after your husband died, that's a win. You taking a shower, that's a win. You showing up for work, that's a win. Gratitude's down the road. Right now, it's a win. Just concentrate on some wins. When I think of as we get further along in grief, I remember once at a, um, a lecture, I was talking about um, gratitude. And, you know, a counselor said, can you find gratitude around your son's death? And I went, well, there's no gratitude that he died. But there's only one thing worse than the thought of my younger son dying is me never getting to meet him. Yeah. So I am ever so grateful I got to know him this lifetime. That would have been the worst thing that could have happened. And I'm so grateful I had those years with him. But that takes a lot of work and time to get there. You can't just slap that onto someone in week four and say, here, be grateful. It doesn't work that way. In your darkest moments when your son died, did you ever think you were going to get out of it? I, you know, there's moments I'm like, I'm done. I'm packing this up. It's over. No more grief counseling. I'm going to be that crazy guy, the old curmudgeon guy on the street that the kids whisper, why do you think he's crazy? And they're like, oh, he used to be a grief expert and then his son died. Now, I thought I was going to be that guy. I had those moments. But, you know, those moments don't stay. They don't stay. 
Do you still have dark moments? I think part of life is still having dark moments. Yeah. So, yeah, sure I do. And I also think that grief expands your bandwidth. Mm. I have dark moments. I have really joyous moments too. And I'll tell you, one of the shocking things is I, like no different when I would go to Australia on tour here, we'd often rent a big meeting space. And sometimes you're in a big hotel, especially here, we'd be in a big hotel and we'd have, you know, our conference going on. And in the next room might be Spanish for healthcare providers. In the next room, it might be the accountants. And sometimes at the end of the day, everyone would leave, all the attendees, and the cleaning crew would be there. And the cleaning crew would go, hey, what were you teaching? And I would go, why do you ask? And they say, well, your group was laughing the most. And I would go, grief. And they would go, grief? What kind of grief? And I would go, that kind of grief. And they didn't understand how my group could be the one laughing the most. And it's partly because great despair also expands you for great joy. Yes. Not right away, but in time. How do you find light in the darkness? I think by knowing it will end. Yeah. I think by knowing it will end. I think by knowing no feeling is final. There's no one feeling we're going to get stuck on and stay there forever. Yeah. No feelings final. I love that. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? Be kind to others. Helping is healing. You know, I have a grief educator program now that hundreds of people are learning to be helpers. Some are therapists and counselors. Others of them are regular people who've had terrible losses and want to help. I think knowing that helping is healing. And Kubler-Ross has been an amazing teacher. There's a million things she taught me. Mother Teresa, you know, gave me my career in so many ways. You know, those two women have helped me enormously. I'm grateful for them. They gave me so much advice that I, I, you know, I wouldn't even know where to begin to pass it on. What's the most mystical experience you have ever had? Being in Mother Teresa's convent, being with her. I mean, she's just so powerful. I remember the last time I was in Mother Teresa's presence, she said, she said to me, she grabbed my hand and said, pray for me. And I was like, your mother, like I didn't say this, yeah. but I thought, I'm like, your mother Teresa, you don't need David Kessler to pray for you. You got the Pope, you got Princess Diana, it was back then. You got all these people, you don't need me. And then I realized, you know, in her world, we're just all equal. And my prayers matter to her just as much as anyone else's. And, you know, kindness goes so far. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, kindness is pretty mystical to me. And this world is pretty mystical to me. Beautiful. What's your favorite prayer? You know, I think the serenity prayer. You know, just about accepting the things we can't change and changing the things we can. Yeah. What is the lesson that's taken you the longest to learn? It's about control. It's about that I don't have to control things. That, you know, one of the people that I also was privileged to write a book with was Louise Hay. Yeah. And Louise, you know, always used to teach all is well, all is well. I remember after my son died, when I went to her, I said to her, I told her about David dying and I said, all is not well, Louise, you know, my son has died. And she sat there with me and we both just cried. And it took me a long time, you know, and I still going to, I still sort of say, all is well, and I miss David. You know, I think I've also learned to hold two things, 
to hold grief and gratitude together? Mm. How do you hold them together by just holding them, by allowing them both? What's your greatest hope for society today? I guess that kindness could lead us through this pandemic. That we lead with kind actions and understanding. That we listen to one another, not to respond, but to truly understand one another. What is a life of greatness to you? A life fully lived. No matter how long it is, a life fully lived. You know, I love George Bernard Shaw's quote about, I want to fully be used up when my time comes. You know, I want to be fully used. David Kessler, I think that you are very much being used in this lifetime. So thank you so much for all the amazing, amazing work that you have put into the world. Thank you. Thank you for your work. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free.